You may be seated, and would you pray with me? Lord, I ask that you would grip us, that you would hold us fast out of your love and delight uh, for saving us and, and for us as, as people who are weak and weary in this world. I pray that you would renew in us a love and a delight of you and your word today. It's in your name I pray. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and switch to the wireless. If the wireless, ooh, there we go, nice. All right. I, uh, I am really glad to be back here. Um, the last two weeks have been a lot of fun, and when I say fun, I mean there's been time of respite, but there's been mostly me as a taxi service between uh, the hospital and the Ronald McDonald House in Springfield. They're about a quarter of a mile apart, and my wife is not supposed to walk more than a quarter of a mile. So if you walk one way, you can't walk back, and you're not even supposed to walk up the or walk up to the NICU and everything. So it was like, oh, okay, well, I'll just be a taxi service. And I am exhausted, but it's a good exhausted because it makes me rely on the Lord. So uh, I'm really excited to be back uh, because we had the snowstorm right before I left. Uh, I basically had three people. I think it was three people. It was Rick, Carl, and Lisa that were here the week I left and preached on the most wonderful subject of divorce. So uh, it was not necessarily the sermon that I wanted. It was, however, the sermon that the Lord had put in his word next. Um, but coming back to a text like today actually is a lot of fun because today we're going to be talking about worldly and kingdom wealth. We're going to be resuming where John Peters left off, uh, or well, where John Peters left off, but I'm kind of going to have a little bit of a prelude through what he went through. It was really uh, quite... Um, I, all right, let me put it this way. I'm glad that I was able to participate from afar by watching a Facebook live stream of you guys worshiping, of, of Brett and John coming and sitting in, but it's nothing like being here. <laughs> uh, it's not as enjoyable as being able to be among you, to sit in Sunday school, to make stupid comments, and Carl try and steer the conversation back after I'm the one that makes the stupid comments. It's not, it's not the same as being able to see your guys' faces as opposed to just the pulpit. Um, it's just not the same. So I am so overjoyed to be, be here. Uh, my tiredness, I think, is just betraying me a little bit. Anyway, go ahead and open up to Matthew uh, chapter 19, starting in verse uh, 16, which if you're using the Pew Bibles, that's page 914. But uh, Matthew 19, 16. And while you're turning there, um, just some prelude. These are things that you guys covered a little bit last week. Uh, but people try to find satisfaction in this world, don't they? Uh, they? They try to find their joy in things that ultimately perish. That is what we call vanity. It's vain to try and find our sense of value or delight in things that will become outdated things that will fade with rust or moth, things that fade with wear. It's vanity to try and find, uh, find, find our joy in prizes or pets or possessions or pleasure. 
things that are fleeting. But we all do it. Every single one of us in this room has something that we try and find our joy in. But it never stays. That joy doesn't last. When the newness of something fades away, we find ourselves desiring something more. Uh, in, in his most famous work, C.S. Lewis, uh, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Now, C.S. Lewis put that extremely eloquently. But most of us don't necessarily think like that, at least in practical day-to-day -day terms. Because what we tend to think is that when we, we, when we receive something and our desire is not satiated, it's not satisfied, what do we do? Do we go ahead and turn to God and His Word and try and, and, and find our pleasure in Him? No, we look for the next best thing. So last week, John Peters took you through verses 16 to 22. And like I said, I'm going to go through those as well a uh, little bit, not because he didn't do good enough, but because it leads into the next verses. So if you're going to text John right now and say, Scott's preaching what you preached on, uh, you, you obviously didn't do good enough. Repent, you sinner. Something like that. Don't do that. Actually, what's funny is John would probably take that as like a joke. Uh, so if you want to do it, fine. He'll just text me later and be like, so what was the joke you made in service? And I'll tell him to watch the live stream. Anyway, <laughs> um, but uh, we're going to finish up Matthew 19 today, and we're going to end with the cryptically clear statement Jesus makes at the end of Matthew 19, and we'll, you'll see that. Um, what's important for us to remember here, uh, well, and between last week, this week, and next week, is it's all the similar, it's all the same thought. So the chapter and verse numbers are arbitrary. They don't really matter in the Bible ultimately because like they weren't written in when the Bible was written. And so the beginning of chapter 20 is actually a continuation of the thought from the conclusion of chapter 19. That's not helpful, Bible scholars. Thank you for putting those in there. But, but we need to keep, the, keep this in, in mind, that this is one strain of thinking. Uh, and we'll see, as Lewis put it so eloquently, a man with desires which nothing in this world could satisfy. And when we go through this, it should cause us to reflect on our own hearts and how we try to satisfy the desires that we have. So, let's read just verses 16 to 22 make some comments and we'll go we'll continue on so again uh, that's page 914 in the pew bibles matthew 19 16 and behold a man came up to him saying teacher what good deed must i do to have eternal life and he said to him why do you ask me about what is good there is only one who is good if you would enter life keep the commandments he said to him which ones and Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. 
and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now what we see here is a rich man in a very poor state. What I mean by that is that there's some good qualities here, right? First, he longs for eternal life. He, he says, uh, what do I still lack, right? He, he, he wants eternal life. He knows that Jesus has something to give him, and he knows that there's something that he needs to do. That's a good longing. It's a good longing to want for something more and to realize that you're still in need but he misapplies it. Uh, in, a, in a not good way, he, he assumes that his own righteousness is enough, right? Um, he, he says that he's done enough. He's kept all the things, right? He's done all these things. He's, he's, not, uh, he's not killed anyone. He's not committed adultery. He's not stolen anything big. And he's never told a lie. Oh, wait, hold on. That's impossible. Everyone's told a lie. So what Jesus is doing here is he's pointing out like, hey man, not enough. And, and you can almost see, you can almost feel when Jesus replies that when, uh, when in verse 26, when the young man says to him, all these I have kept, it's almost like Jesus raises an eyebrow. Like, oh yes? Oh, okay. Well, there's still one thing you lack if you want to be perfect. Because ultimately, that's what this guy is trying to do. He's trying to attain perfection in his own actions. He's kept all the commandments perfectly. No, nobody has. Just, just going back to Matthew chapter 5, right? If we were to turn back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 22, we find out that to be angry at someone is to commit murder in your heart. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, implying that same judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now if that's the standard... Do you think this dude's kept it? No, not at all. There's no possible way that he could, have, he could have kept these commandments perfectly. Moving to the next one, we find out in Matthew 5, 27 to 28, that to have lustful thoughts about another person is to commit adultery in your heart. Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's, that's, that's sleeping with somebody else's wife or sleeping with somebody else's husband. But, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I call baloney on this dude. I call baloney on him and say, no, you have not kept all these commandments because there's no possible way. If the standard is never, ever, ever, ever have a lustful thought, never, ever, ever be angry at anyone, then he sinned, but he doesn't see that. He doesn't see his need to repent. He thinks there's just one more thing that he can tack on to his own goodness, and then he's even better. And that's why Jesus calls him out on it. 
That's why Jesus says what he says. Because this guy isn't good enough. You're not good enough. Nobody will ever be righteous enough. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. The righteous for the unrighteous. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Raise your hand if you're unrighteous. Every hand should be every hand. Now I know who's sleeping, and it's not Carl this time. Anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I pick on Carl, I'm sorry. I haven't been here for two weeks, man. I gotta pick on you at least a couple times. Anyway, so, <laughs> so Peter writes that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's the gospel. Everyone is righteous. No one is righteous, Paul says in Romans 3.23. Not one. Nobody. Nobody will ever be righteous enough. Therefore, Jesus had to come and die for, any, for all those who would call on his name for salvation. This guy needed to repent, but he didn't think that he needed to. Again, he, think he, he thought he just needed to tack on one more good deed and then he might get something more from God. And so Jesus calls him out on exactly the one thing that he's not able to do. If you want to be perfect, which could be translated mature or complete also, um, but, but he says, if you would be perfect, in verse 21, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now, why did Jesus say it that way? Because this dude's treasure was on earth, and he would not surrender it. He would not repent of where his treasure was, and he would not follow Christ Otherwise, we wouldn't have verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, sorrowful. For, because, he had great possessions. So this rich young guy is actually in a really poor state. Those who are eager for the blessing of eternal life but are unwilling to surrender comforts in this life are not just in a poor state, they're in a dangerous state also. The wealthy, like this rich dude, may be filled with comforts, but they're in danger. They may not be in danger right this second, but they are in danger. Uh, Pur the Puritan George Swinock, uh, to be fair, so many people say Swinnock. I'm not sure it's pronounced Swinock, but, uh, but I, I heard somebody say his name recently of Swinock, so I'll say Swinock. But the Puritan George Swinock put it this way. He said, it is hard to be wealthy and not wanton. Um, this guy still wanted more. He still wanted more. He said, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He wanted, he wanted, he wanted uh, uh, comfort in this life plus comfort in the next life. He wanted goodness here and goodness there. He wanted wealth here and wealth there. 
But to find out that he had to give up what he idolized most here was unthinkable to him, even if he would gain eternal life or eternal wealth. So though he had fervency to go to Jesus, though there were good things to him, he ultimately was lacking. He was lacking the faith to surrender what he cherished most. Now that comes to the rest of the passage. So let me go ahead and read verses 23 to 30. Uh, so if you turn back in your Bible um, to Matthew 19, Jesus does this. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's walk through this a little bit. Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus says in verse 24. There is a self-satisfaction to having goods in this world. I've, I've done this, all right? This is, this is something stupid I've done, and I confess this to you as something stupid that I've done. I... Uh, I, I bought a laptop that was capable of gaming, okay? I can now play Minecraft at the ultra settings. Anyway, the, but, but I, I, I bought a laptop that was capable of gaming. I, had, I, had a, I have this, right? This is my little portable guy. And it was not, I, I bought it literally for the screen. It's not super powerful. So I bought this gaming laptop, right? And I, I, I intentionally bought a step below what was the like top of the line because I figured I needed to be humbled, right? So instead of, instead of getting the best of the best, I'll go ahead and get the almost best of the best. And so then, then I go and I just gotten this thing, right? And I'm all happy with it. And I'm, I'm playing games on it and enjoying it. And I go and I hang out with some friends and I pop this thing out because I, I, I'm not so good at painting figurines. You were there. Anyway, so I'm not so good at painting figurines. They gave me a rat to paint. Like these were the friends that I was hanging out with. Little teeny rat. It's like this big. They're like, go ahead and paint it. And I'm like, oh, you don't want me doing that. Anyway, so, so then I start playing games on the laptop. And one of the other guys is like, man, that, that laptop's really pulling through on that game. And did I, what, what do you think I did? I humble myself and say, you know, I'm just praising the Lord that I have this, that I can play these games. No, I'm like, yeah, look at how much I can crank the settings up and look at how good this is. And the guy's like, oh man, I've only got this graphics card on my computer. And I'm like, yeah, you need to upgrade. You need to get what this is. And I was so prideful, so absolutely prideful. Why? Because there's a self-satisfaction when we get something good in this world, isn't there? 
whether it's a car, whether it's a horse, whether it's a, a, a bike, whether it's a scooter, whatever it is, when we get that thing that we want, we are satisfied. We've got it. But then that satisfaction wanes. It is hard for the wealthy not to be wanton. Those who attempt to gain much in this world will find that there is always more that they want. And they would rather seek their own personal pleasure and their wealth and their possessions than pleasure in knowing God and serving Him. It is very difficult to serve God and money. Might say it's impossible, Jesus says it. Now, Jesus gives an illustration here. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I am 90% sure that every single person in this room has at one time heard that the eye of a needle was a gate in Jerusalem that was very narrow, and it was super hard to squeeze camels through, and you kind of had to shimmy the camels through in order to make it through. That is bunk. That literally became popular at some point between the 70s and the 90s, the 1970s and the 1990s. There is zero archaeological evidence of there ever being a gate called the Eye of a Needle. Not even a hole in Jerusalem's wall it doesn't exist. So step out of that and realize what Jesus is actually saying here. It is nearly impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It is about as much possible for you to take a needle and thread a camel through it. Can you do that? No, please answer me no. Can you put a camel through the eye of a needle? No. There we go, all right. You can't do it. Now, the disciples are astonished, right? You've got verse 25. The disciples heard this. They were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Now, there's two possible reasons that they're astonished. Reason number one, they're imagining a needle and a camel, and they're like, well, how do you do that, right? Like, like some, somebody's problem solving. Well, I guess you could probably open the needle up and have it be, you know, if you take the needle and make it two pieces and open it, maybe, maybe then... Maybe that's what's happening. <laughs> but I think, it's, I think it's actually because the Jewish culture at the time really did think that the rich, the wealthy, were more loved by God than the poor. Now, the Bible is really clear that that's not the case. It's why the prosperity, the so-called prosperity gospel is such a damnable heresy. But, but you think about what Casey read in the beginning, Proverbs 18, 10 through 11. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. The rich person is being contrasted with the righteous person. Why? Because the righteous person runs to the Lord. The rich person runs to his own imagination. 
My kids and I have been watching a lot of DuckTales. Love the show DuckTales. There's a new one and it's actually really funny, it's really good. But my kids and I have been watching DuckTales. If you know DuckTales, even the old one, Scrooge McDuck dives into a pool of money and swims in it. Why? Because he's self-satisfied in his wealth, and he's a perfect example for a, for, for a character, a duck, I mean, it's not a real person, but a perfect example of somebody who always wants more. He's always going on these treasure hunts. He's a caricature, but he's really what we're like. No matter how much wealth we have, we're always wanting more. Anyway, Christ is, Christ is saying, that, that it's essentially impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because they're self-satisfied in their own righteousness and their own wealth. And the, the, the disciples are like, wait, what? I thought rich people were loved by God. So they, they're, they're kind of blown away by what Jesus is saying, like normal. A few more examples. Asaf, uh, the, the psalmist, Asaf in Psalm 73.3 um, laments that he became, and I quote, envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. The wicked prosper. And, and the righteous sometimes become envious of the wicked when they prosper. Have you ever been or, uh, envious of a wicked person who's prospering? Maybe somebody who owns a lot of land and you wish you owned that land too? And you know that they're cheating every possible person out of their wealth and, and they're getting lots of money and you get envious. Why, why, can't, why can't God give me that? Asaf was lamenting in that and he expounds on that by, by giving you his thought in verse 13, Psalm 73, 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Why was it vain? Because he wasn't prospering. He was envious of the prosperous wicked. And then the prophet Jeremiah also, uh, he, he, he's trying to figure this out. If you know the prophet Jeremiah, he lived in one of the most wicked times in Israel, and he's really, really frustrated with God. And he says this, he says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Starts out pretty good. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. That's Jeremiah 12 verses 1 and 2. The wicked prosper. Therefore, the rich are not more favored by God. Oftentimes, I'm going to say this, wealthiness, whatever that wealthiness looks like to a person, becomes the wall by which God bars them from salvation. Just like the rich dude in the beginning here. He did not want to surrender his wealth. And therefore, that became the wall by which he would not be saved. So the disciples were surprised, either by the metaphor of a camel going through the eye of a needle, which, by the way, if that was a gate in Jerusalem, it would be phrased differently in the Greek. The Greek literally says, the eye of a needle. 
If, if, if it were a gate, you would have the, the perfect part, or the, 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 uh, the perfect, no, oh my gosh, the word the, you would have the eye of the needle. That's how it would be phrased in the Greek. That's how things are named. Anyway, it's ambiguous, therefore I don't think it's a gate. But either, either the, the, the metaphor of, of a camel going through this little tiny pinprick, literally, or, uh, or because they really think the wealthier closer to God, which by the way is something the Pharisees propagated. The Pharisees would show how poor and destitute they were so that people would give them gifts. Because, because if they were wealthier, they would be better off before God. Anyway, I really, so the disciples are, are surprised that Jesus says that it's with difficulty that the rich would enter the kingdom. But then Jesus looks at them, knowing, knowing that the wealthy are in a dangerous state because that wealth can deceive their hearts, making them think that they can earn God's love or earn salvation, or even worse, that God owes them salvation. The wealthy miss what David says in Psalm 53, verses 2 to 3, that God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The wealthy often miss that fact. They think that their philanthropy earns them God's love when in fact their own self-satisfaction turns them away from God's love and Jesus Christ. But Jesus looks on his disciples and gives them good news. In verse 26, he says, with man, this is impossible. There is no hope of a man coming to salvation. No hope by himself. But with God, all things are possible. Now that all things in context is about a rich person coming to salvation. So let's not misapply that. Let's not, you know, have you have an empty gas tank and have to drive home and you're like, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Don't, no, just go to the gas station. I will push you to the gas station. Anyway, the <laughs> but let's not misapply that, the context here. Jesus is saying that with God, even the wealthy can be saved. Now, why is that good news for you and I? Because we are in the, one of the wealthiest nations on earth. And even the poorest of the poor here on earth probably has more than the richest of the rich in other places. Whether it's Ghana, Africa, or, 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 or places in India, or most of the Arabic nations, the poorest of the poor here are probably better off than the richest of the rich in some of those places. It is not possible for you or I to be saved in our wealth apart from God's direct intervention. Now, what about those of us who do follow Jesus, who have, who have surrendered uh, our things and, and gone before God and said, you know what, all this stuff is yours. I need to use it for your glory. 
like me with my laptop. How did I wrestle with that? Well, I humble, the Lord humbled me after that, frankly. I felt like God, like God hit me in the face with a brick. But anyway, the, but, but how, how, how do, what are we going to get? If we take all that we have and realize that everything could be burned up in a fire and we would still be joyful in the Lord, what, what does that look like for you and me? Well, it looks like Peter. Oh, helpful Peter, who in verse 27 kind of shows our heart as Christians. He says, uh, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Now, you and I can't really say that. We haven't dropped everything. I think all of us live in homes. I think all of us have stuff. Most of us have smartphones. Um, if we don't have smartphones, then we have a computer. If we have both and don't know how to use them, then we have people that know how to help us use them. Anyway, so, <laughs> so most of us have stuff. We have not abandoned everything like the 12 apostles, right? But how often we suffer in the same struggle that Peter does. How many times have you and I, with all of our worldly pains towering over us, and, and when we start getting beaten down by sufferings, do we wonder the same thing, right? We might pray like Peter, I left all these possible, possible comforts, all these possible jobs, all these places I could have gone, I left them and I followed you, and this is what I get, or, and what will I have? Because frankly, God, I'm dissatisfied. I'm suffering, I'm struggling, I'm unhappy. Uh, things are not going my way. My boss is looking at me funny because I'm a Christian. My neighbors think I'm an idiot because I'm a Christian. It would be so much easier to abandon you, Lord, but I'm not, so what then will I have? And here Christ assures us that we do not follow him in vain. Because those who leave behind possible worldly benefits to follow Christ are in a blessed state. So you've got the rich young man who's actually in a poor state. You've got the wealthy who are in kind of a dangerous state. And then there's us who follow Christ, who repent of our sin, who daily struggle with that old man. We're in a blessed state because we will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life for leaving good things to follow Jesus. Let me assure you, you do not have to cut your family ties to inherit eternal life. That is not what Jesus is saying. There is oftentimes a greater gospel proclamation and holding firm to families and preaching the gospel in the midst of the struggle than for just cutting out ties with obnoxious and frustrating family members. There are times that we have to choose to serve God rather than man. Now, what I, what I mean by that is that there are certain sports leagues that my kids will never get to participate in because they uh, play games on Sundays. There are um, certain times that you will be reached out to by a friend who's like, hey, why don't you come to lunch? And you can choose either to gather in worship and, and, and serving the Lord or to just go ahead and get brunch. Not saying that every single time you do that is sin, but there's times where you're going to think like, hey, do I worship God 
or do I just go have fun? Uh, a good example, I had a, I had a roommate who seemed to always want to schedule the most fun things on Sundays. And I, he, he did it because I was a Christian, and he did it basically to tempt me so that I wouldn't go to church on Sunday, that I wouldn't run soundboard or, or, or go to small group on Wednesday nights. Like, he, he would do these things just to frustrate me, and it wasn't a great situation anyway. But the, he, would, he would offer to do all these really fun things on Sundays, and it, you know, day trip into the mountains or go camping Saturday night. All of my other friends would get to go, but man, I wanted to serve God rather than leisure or fun. And so I showed up on Sunday. And, uh, and my pastor at the time would tell me not to be a legalist. He's like, you can take a Sunday off, man. It is okay. But that wasn't really the thing. I was wrestling in my heart, not against legalism, but against the fact that, frankly, running soundboard is not fun. Anytime something goes wrong, everybody turns and looks at the sound booth. I really think that's why the wall is as high as it is, so that whoever's in the sound booth can shrink down a little bit, so maybe you just might not know it's Rick. <laughs> but every time something goes wrong, it's the sound guy's fault. And you know what? Something goes wrong every single Sunday. But the sound guy, whether Rick or whether Caleb or whether Garnet, well, Garnet's not a sound guy. You know what I mean. The sound person, <laughs> the sound person shows up because they want to glorify God. They want to do what they can to glorify God instead of doing whatever else, the fun, the, whatever else fun they're being invited to on Sunday. The person who makes sacrifices even like that is going to receive a blessing a hundredfold in the eternal kingdom, in the new heavens and the new earth. So when Jesus says, um, leave father, mother, leave brother, sister, it doesn't mean, all right, follow Jesus, I have to go ahead and delete all the, all, all the contacts from my phone or block them. It doesn't mean, ah, okay, all right, I, I have to cut my parents out of my life. It doesn't, it doesn't mean any of that. What it means is those little teeny moments when you can choose to either go do something you want or worship the Lord in another way, whether Sunday or another day. So I want to encourage you at least with that. Um, now, I want to point out too, most of the time, Jesus, when Jesus discusses discipleship, it's not in terms of benefit. You can double check me. You can read Luke 9.23, where he, uh, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Carrying a cross is not a good thing. You can confer in Matthew 10.38 and 16.24. We've gone through those. Mark 8.34, that's the same thing. Or Luke 14, Jesus gives an illustration about an idiot who decides to build a tower but doesn't count the cost beforehand. And uh, so then he builds part of a tower, but he can't really finish it. Or, or, or the, the dumb king who decides to go out to, uh, to battle but doesn't first consider how many troops the other guy has and how many troops he has. That's not how Jesus says it. But, the, but that's, that's the point. Jesus is saying that anybody who would follow him needs to count the cost. But here, friends, here we have the blessings. We have the good news. We have the good stuff. 
There's good things for following Jesus, not just all curse. Now, the final statement that Jesus gives after that encouragement is this clearly cryptic or cryptically clear statement. Verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Next week, we're going to go through a parable that illustrates it. So let me, let me now just summarize it by saying that Christ means to remind us not to look on outward appearance on who will be the most important in his kingdom. Some people who seem super giants in the faith, when we get to heaven, are going to be the furthest away from the throne. They made it. They made it. But then there's going to be people who we've never even known the name of who are sitting right next to, to Jesus, right? They're, they're right in front of the stage. They're on the front row that you guys avoid, but with Jesus. The <laughs> and they're shining brightest, and they have the most glorious crowns that, like the 24 elders in Revelation 4, are throwing before Jesus because only Jesus is worthy to receive those rewards. Just because someone looks super extra holy on the outside does not mean that they're super extra holy on the inside. Sometimes those guys that we really think are going to make it, who, who are the most wonderful, excellent saints, who have the most eloquent sermons, who are not me, who, <laughs> who, are, who are in every facet showing like they are the most holy person ever, they're going to be the furthest away from the throne of God in heaven. Many who are first in this life will be last in the next. So what should we make of all this, right? There's a, there's, there's, I mean, I've made several applications, but there's three that I'd bear repeating. Number one, do not trust your own self-righteousness but know uh, that a sense of your holiness is a sure path to destruction. If you think you are super holy, you need to repent, and you need to be humbled, and you need to read God's word and realize very clearly that there is none righteous, no, not one. No, one, no one seeks after God. That includes even you apart from God's direct intervention. Don't trust your own self-righteousness. Number two, we should examine our own trust of our possessions and wealth, knowing that it actually might be better to get rid of our stuff in order to follow our Savior. I, I, this, is a, this is literally a sermon point from several months ago. Uh, so if it sounds familiar, I'm glad. Uh, if there are things that you think you cannot live without then those are the things that, that you need to get rid of in order to follow Jesus with your whole heart. If there is something in your life that's causing you to sin, if your eye causes you to stumble, if your hand causes you to sin, gouge it out, cut it off, whatever you need to do, get rid of it so that you can follow Jesus with your whole heart. Number three. Following Jesus is worth it, no matter the cost. No matter who you are, you're going to face countless disappointments in this life. But if you follow Jesus, you'll never face another disappointment in the next life. 
If you can honestly sing those lyrics, and you know that every single bit of it is true, then you in fact know that it's not by your deeds that you have inherited an eternal life. It's not by your wealth. It's not by your possessions. It's by Jesus Christ and his atoning death, his sacrificial death on the cross. We are saved by grace through faith. And this is not your own doing, friends. It's the work of God. Go in peace, saints.